Well, open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. A little roadmap for us, you know, when, when we've gotten to some of these big transitions in, in Luke, which there's a couple of them, we will usually take a break and do some work in different books of the Bible, uh, probably something in the Old Testament. So we're sort of at the end of this major section in Luke. And so um, Jeff will be preaching next Sunday, then Easter, and then we'll come back and we'll do some, do some work in Jonah. And we'll get back, we'll finish out Luke um, for sure, but probably after we get, all get done traveling for the summer. I want to remind us before we dive into the text of the purpose of Luke. We've been in Luke for a long time, um, and so it's easy to lose sight of chapter 1 when you've been walking you know, pretty slowly through uh, the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. Luke said in the, in the opening verses of chapter 1 that he set out to, to compile an account, really eyewitness accounts, of the things concerning Jesus so that Theophilus, the, the man to whom he is writing, and, and by extension us, right? In fact, Theophilus means beloved by God. I mean, maybe that's a word that's in, indicative of the church even. But that Theophilus might have confidence concerning the things of Christ, the things that he's been taught, that he might have a certainty about them. And so as we approach the text this morning, we want to approach it with that purpose in mind. What do we learn about Christ? How can we be more confident in Christ? And so as I said, we're we're finishing up this large section that began in chapter 9, verse 51. If if anything, for the rest of your life, when you're reading the Gospel of Luke, you ought to get to chapter 9, verse 51, and and recognize, oh, this is where he starts to head towards Jerusalem. I think we've said that like 50,000 times, and that's okay. But in chapter 9, verse 51, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. From there to the end of our text this morning is this travel narrative. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's healing. He's teaching. He's preparing his disciples. And now he's going to enter into Jerusalem, which sort of begins this big third section of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so in today's text, Jesus finishes the last couple miles of this journey as he as he draws nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. And what we find is that actually Jesus enters Jerusalem in a lot of the same ways that he entered creation itself, humbly and with shouts of joy from those who recognize him. He enters humbly and with shouts of joy. Right In Bethlehem, it was the angels who announced glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But it was a humble birth in Bethlehem. Yet those who knew rejoiced greatly. And here in our text this morning, we have the disciples crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so we look at Christ this morning and the way that He chose to finish His journey to Jerusalem to announce His kingship. First, we see that he is a a humble king. There in verse 28, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So our passage actually begins by by pointing us back to what preceded it. Right After he finished saying these things, then he went to Jerusalem. 
Well, remember what happened in in the previous paragraph and in the parable that Jesus told. The purpose of the parable was given to us. You can read it there in verse 11. But it was told to us that he was about to go to Jerusalem and many people were thinking that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so Jesus tells this parable to prepare his disciples about a nobleman who goes into a far country and he receives the kingdom and then it takes him a little while to get back and to rule there. And the parable was designed ultimately to encourage the disciples and ultimately us, since we live in this this time in between the first and second coming of Jesus, to be faithful between his death, burial, and resurrection and his second coming. Coming to remain faithful in the intervening time. He wanted to prepare his followers for this gap of time that exists between his first and second coming. Why would he need to do that? Because many assumed, again, verse 11, that Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman occupiers and set up an earthly rule there in Jerusalem. Well, the parable matters because we see in our text this morning that when Jesus does march into Jerusalem, he doesn't say, hey, go into the city, get my armor, get my weapons, and get my war horse. Right? He asks them to get a colt that has never been ridden before. This is, this is the foal of a, a donkey. And Matthew indicates for us that they actually brought you know, the mommy donkey along with them. Now, you have to forgive me if, if mommy donkey is not the right, you know, farm terminology is not my specialty. We were at the stock show one year with the Kellers, and there we had a little petting zoo, and I had my boys there, and I said, do you want to pet the thing? And Amanda said, it's a lamb. So just roll with me on mommy donkey. The fact that Jesus chooses this this young donkey, actually, is significant for a few reasons. First, it's the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. We see in this text, and we'll develop this more fully in a moment, that nothing that Jesus does in this, in anything really, but in our text, is accidental. He is in complete control of every detail, even down to the choice of animal that he chooses to ride into Jerusalem. Well, why would he do that? Well, it's in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus gets this colt to ride in on for, for one reason, to fulfill what was written about him, that the king would ride into Jerusalem this way to demonstrate that he is the king that was long promised, the long awaited Messiah. In fact, Jerusalem should have been waiting for this sort of king that would ride in this way. But we'll see that they continue to miss him. Also, notice what Zechariah 9.9 says about the way that, or, or what this donkey implies about Jesus. The second thing I want us to notice in this text, not not point two if you're keeping notes, but just about this donkey itself, the colt symbolizes this humble entrance into Jerusalem. Right? Zechariah 9.9 made that 
for us. He's lowly and riding on a donkey. So I don't think we're reading too much into Luke to talk about the the humble king, the humility of Jesus. The king is lowly, he's gentle, he's humble. The high king, right? We talked about that last week from Colossians chapter 1. King of creation, king of redemption, supreme over it all. The high king takes up a lowly position, knowing and trusting that he will be exalted by the Father in due time. Trusting that victory will come through, uh, not, not coming in on a war horse again, but through actually his humiliation and his subsequent death. Jesus lowers himself, he humbles himself, and he demonstrates it by riding on the back of a, of a donkey. Right? And this is sort of a, a paradox for us, right? We mentioned the high status of Jesus and the, the lowliness with which he comes. Jesus comes in simplicity. He comes in service. He comes in humility. And this is, this is the way that Christ will enter and go receive the kingdom in the far country. You know, how many kingdoms, how many earthly kingdoms have put forward a, 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 a picture of strength and might and power, and they've all crumbled to nothing? Yet Jesus establishes an eternal kingdom by walking or riding in on this donkey. Again, because he's trusting in the victory and vindication that will be achieved in his work. He's fully confident in the Father's will so that he enters in humble fashion. I think in this we we behold our King. We see the glory of Jesus Christ, lowly, humble, in service, coming to establish his kingdom forever. Another thing we see there, in, actually in verse 30, is that the colt has never been ridden. I think what the text does here is it subtly hints at the, the holiness, the purity of Jesus. He's set apart, he's consecrated. He gets a colt that has never been ridden before. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, you'll read these stories where like, oh, these, these ox are going to pull uh, the Ark of the Covenant. We better get ox who have never been yoked before for this sacred task. Right? It seems like Luke's kind of picking up on this idea. Get, get a colt that's never been ridden before because he's going to have the holy king on his back. So Jesus arrives in accordance with Scripture. He arrives humbly. He arrives according to His own plan. If we look back in verse 29, it says, He draws near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, so those who were sent away went away. There, I'm like, why can I not make that? And found it just as he had told them. I'll read one of these days. So Jesus instructs his disciples, and I think in the instructions, we get the sense that he's in total control over the details of his arrival. Now, it is, it is possible. I, 
it, technically, it's possible that Jesus maybe prearranged the details, right? Uh, maybe he sent somebody on ahead and prearranged, have this colt ready, and, and you know, we'll send somebody in. But I think there's details in the text that would suggest that this is Jesus exercising, again, his omniscience, his, his knowing everything, and therefore orchestrating the details of his arrival sovereignly. Okay, what are these, what are these clues? Well, one of them, I think, in the text is that the, the owner itself of the, the cold asks, why are you doing this? Right there in verse um, 32. He asks, well, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? Well, if Jesus had prearranged the details of this uh, arrangement, they would have known why the disciples were there. We wouldn't expect the question. Also, I think the words there in verse 32, that they found these, these details just as they had been told. I think it's, again, indicative that it's highlighting for us, look, what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. Isn't that uncanny? That he knew exactly where the cult would be, right? If we're right about this, then we notice that what Jesus was directing, not only through his knowledge, but through his sovereignty. He knew where the animal would be. He knew that it would be tied up. He knew that it had never been ridden before. He knew how the disciples should respond if they're asked, why are you stealing my colt? And they found everything just as Jesus had said it would be. I think we see in this text that Jesus is orchestrating these details. And so the disciples obey, they find the colt, they untie it, and just like Jesus said would, would likely happen, they're asked, what are you doing? And I love the answer, the Lord has need of it. Right? One writer said, Jesus' word is enough, permission is not necessary, only explanation. Right? And that's what the disciples give, just explanation. Jesus needs it, so we're taking it. So the explanation worked. The disciples bring the animal to Jesus. And so Jesus, in humble fashion and control of all the details, is orchestrating his arrival in Jerusalem. This is, again, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Yet it doesn't stop many from missing the significance of the arrival of Jesus. Our second point this morning is the controversial king. He is a controversial king. And by that, I don't mean that, that he should be controversial. He shouldn't. Everyone should fall down and welcome the king into Jerusalem. He's not controversial in the same way these guys on 24-hour news are controversial, trying to create controversy. It's not that. It's that his arrival becomes controversial because there are many that remain in their obstinate rejection of Jesus. So he's a controversial king there in verse 35 through 40. We'll read the first few verses uh, there for us. 35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along... They spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
So after grabbing the colt, they bring it back to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on top of the colt to serve as sort of a makeshift saddle there. And then as he's going down the road on top of this colt, others, and this is the multitude of disciples, right? These are, these are followers of Jesus. I think, you know, maybe the other gospel writers include other people that sort of join in this chorus. Luke highlights for us the faithful disciples. They begin to throw their cloaks on the ground so that this unridden colt doesn't have to walk through the dirt as it carries Jesus. And this isn't, you know, unusual. This happens in the Old Testament. You see where, you know, they're throwing the, the cloaks in 2 Kings 9 and before Jehu so he doesn't have to walk on the steps. Right? It's, in other words, this is what, how you treat a king. This is what you do when a king is coming to town. He's given the royal treatment here. In today's terminology, we might say they rolled out the red carpet to welcome the king into Jerusalem. And what we see symbolized in sort of the throwing the cloaks on the ground is is verbally expressed in their praise for Jesus in verses 37 and 38. In verse 37, Jesus is drawing near. Again, Luke does this thing where he's like, he's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer to Jerusalem. He's drawing near. He's on his way down the Mount of Olives. He's going to drop in the Kidron Valley, and he's going to finally arrive as he heads up into Jerusalem. And as he heads down, the, the, the crowd there, which again, Luke highlights the faithful disciples for us, they praise God corporately. And the reason the text gives for their crying out is that they have seen many mighty works done by Jesus. We've seen as we've walked again slowly through the Gospel of Luke that His ministry has been a continuous demonstration of God's power. He has given hearing to the deaf. He has caused the lame to walk. He has given sight to the blind. He has delivered from demonic possession. He has raised the dead. His teaching has come with the authority with which only God teaches. It was a demonstration of His wisdom and His power and His authority. And these works testified to the person of Jesus, to His status. And they're directly tied to his role as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Right? Remember, what did John ask? Are you the one who is to come? And what did Jesus say? Go and tell him what you've seen. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Oh, if that's what Jesus is doing, then he's the one to come. Right? His works testify to his person. And the crowd recognizes that, that. Now, they've got a lot to learn about Jesus, as we even talked about a couple weeks ago. They don't know everything they need to know about Jesus. They're going to get really discouraged when he dies and not understand and not remember the predictions, all that. But they recognize that the works point to his person, that he is the king who has come. They say so in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The first part of that, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is a reference to one of the Psalms, Psalm 
118, verse 26. And what's happening in, in the context of Psalm 118, it describes a king following some victory, leading a group into the temple and receiving a glad welcome from the priests inside the temple. The king is blessed because he comes in the name of the Lord. He, he comes with the Lord's uh, approval and as the Lord's representative. So this is an announcement of the kingship of Jesus. We've seen that he has the Father's approval. And that he acts in the Father's name. So Jesus here is acknowledged, confessed by the disciples as possessing the approval of God as the king who leads his people into the presence of God. The only difference, actually, they kind of borrow language from Psalm 118, verse 26. But Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does the crowd chant? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they, they, they apply this specifically to Jesus, acknowledging his kingship. These are, again, verse 37 told us, these are the faithful followers of Jesus who are shouting this. Right? These, are the, 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 these are what we might call the remnant the faithful few who recognize Jesus for who he is. They're the handful in Israel who are doing what Zechariah 9.9 said to do. When you see your king riding in on a donkey, rejoice, Jerusalem. Well, it's not the whole city. It's just a handful of these disciples who have recognized Christ. They see him as king and they announce peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, they don't, I don't know that they fully understand the glory of their own words. They don't, even, they don't understand this peace will be purchased through the blood of his cross. This truth has been hidden from them until after the resurrection, and Jesus shows it to them. That God is making peace in Christ Jesus through the death that he has promised several times in the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, this Gospel we'll see, will go well beyond the borders of Israel. He's doing something far greater than sort of throwing off the oppression of the Romans. He's purchasing peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's going on in this text is a a public disclosure of the person of Jesus, that he is king. Right? And this is important as we think about how Luke has developed. Right? Remember in chapter 9, Jesus asks, who, who do they say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did, what did Jesus do? Immediately he charged them to tell no one. We also know from John chapter 6 that after feeding the 5,000, these, these guys were like really happy. We want more of this. So it says they they went to take Jesus by force and make him the king. But Jesus' goal wasn't just to be made king by the people. So what did he do? There's this whole group of people. They probably could form an army out of this, 5,000 men. He slips away. It was not his time. 
Right? Why would he tell the disciples, don't tell anybody? Why would he heal somebody and say, hey, keep this to yourself? Jesus is controlling the, the day of his death. And now the time has come to publicly disclose that the king is here. It's no longer time to keep quiet. The crowds are not shushed for crying out. But there are some, there are some there that think they should. Look in verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees reject the sort of praise that's directed at Jesus. In fact, they expect Jesus to reject it as well. Tell them to be quiet. Tell them not to speak this way. This is blasphemy. They're cringing at the idea that Jesus is, is king. I mean, it's evident. We sort of had to like think about Old Testament. We had to think about what's happening here. We had to think about context. It, you know, to say like, hey, this is Jesus saying he's king. Right? We had to do a lot of work 2,000 years later to, to see it. The Pharisees saw it right away. They know exactly what this is about. They're saying you're the king, Jesus. Tell them to stop. Surely this praise is too high for you, Jesus. So they tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And it's evident that they are persisting in their rejection. And not only that, but they're leading the nation away. They are indeed the blind leading the blind. And so they cannot see their king right in front of them. And they've led others astray down this path. They ask for rebuke, and somebody gets rebuked in the text, but it's not the disciples. Right? Jesus, what does he say? He tells, he tells the Pharisees, if, if they didn't cry out, the rocks would cry out. And the rebuke is this, that, that, that these inanimate rocks along the path here, they recognize their king better than you do to the Pharisees. Creation recognizes its Savior, but the leadership of Israel is blind. They do not see it. You know, I read this week a, a great quote, if geology has to take up the task of theology, then it's an implicit, implicit judgment on the leaders of Israel. If the rocks have to cry out, it's because the Pharisees failed to recognize the king and they failed to be guides with sight leading people to Jesus. There's also a sense in this, this rebuke from Jesus of the unstoppability of this praise. If you could silence the faithful, the rocks will cry out. Right? Even if they... It does not matter what you try to do. The praise that belongs to Jesus will come to Him. There is no stopping the chorus of praise that belongs to the King as He approaches Jerusalem. In other words, nothing can negate Jesus the King and nothing can stop the fulfillment of God's plan which He had orchestrated from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. So Jesus rebukes the disciples. And amazingly, at a point in the text where we would expect triumph, glory, more praise, 
what do we get? We get lament and a prophetic word of impending judgment. So the third point this morning is he is the prophetic king. Look in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. We have the, the triumphant. This is what Zechariah 9.9 said, right? The triumphant, victorious. Praiseworthy king. Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's found weeping. I don't know. I don't know about you. I, I wonder what you would expect at the end of verse 41. And when he draw near to the city, he fill in the blank. What would you expect? Probably not weeping. Before we get to this prediction of impending judgment and destruction, we see the compassion of Jesus towards people in Jerusalem who will soon be putting him to death. This, this scene, again, it sort of like pops up and it kind of wrecks the mood here. This weeping Christ. I think it highlights two things, the compassion of Jesus and the horrid response of rejecting Jesus. You know, at the Judgment and Mercy Conference we did uh, last week with Ridgeview Bible Church, you know, Jeff mentioned that like, it's, it's impossible, nearly impossible for us to express right anger. You know, so much so that in Ephesians, when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, yeah, he says that, and then like a few verses later, he's like, put away all anger. Right, why? Because Paul knows that like 99.999, we rarely know what it's like to express right anger that isn't so intertwined with sin. And it's amazing as we stare at Jesus that he's not that way. That he perfectly expresses compassion and love and mercy and anger and wrath and judgment. And we see it here right in our text. He has compassion. He's moved with compassion. He's weeping. I think of it like a, like a parent who's, you know, of an older child who's who has to stand back and watch as their child's just making these destructive decisions. What do you do? You lament, you weep. But you still, it's your child, you have, you have compassion there. Well, Jesus laments Israel's rejection. Jesus is God in the flesh, and the Bible tells God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He, he desires repentance. You know, one thing is true. That those who remain in rebellion to Jesus will not be able to say that he lacked compassion and did not exercise mercy and did not stand ready to save. In fact, one of the ways as, I, as I, we sort of behold our King, we see the glory of Christ, one of the ways that, that I hope to become more like Christ is to develop more compassion for those who have rejected Him. David said in Psalm 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
Paul too wept over the rejection of Israel in, in Romans chapter 9. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish because his brothers have rejected Christ. Paul goes so far as to say, I would be accursed if they might experience the blessings of salvation. And so as I think about Christ and who he is and what he's like, and I, I, I want to be like him and I have to confess, it's not something that I can just create in of myself. I can't conjure up. I can't grip my teeth and care more. Right? You and I, we have to ask God to give us soft hearts for the lost. Soften us. Break our hearts that there's still people groups all over our world who have never heard the name of Jesus. And after asking him to do that work in us. I, I, we just got to stare at Christ and enjoy Him and love Him through prayer, through reading the Bible, through studying the Bible together with believers, through corporate worship. We get this joy in following Christ, and from that flows a desire that, man, I, man, I want everybody to know this. Right? I remember I've quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones this way before, but he says, if you were to ask me to define a Christian, he would say he's one who knows Christ and since coming to know Christ is the happiest person and he wants everyone else to know this happiness. Right? He's not neglecting suffering there. He's just saying, man, the more we know Christ, the closer we go to Christ, the more joy we have in Christ. Perhaps the greater compassion we have for those who are found outside of Jesus. Look what happens in verse 42 then. He's weeping, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We see the reason for Jesus' tears is the rejection of this peace that has come in Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, and they have rejected Him. And they therefore will not have peace with God. And this is a willful, stubborn rejection of God that results in just them being completely blind from seeing this way of peace that's available in Christ Jesus. It is hidden from them. Again, in response, their willful rejection, it's hidden from them as an act of divine Judgment. See, Israel was God's chosen people, the people of promise, the recipients of the covenants, the ones who had received the, the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the written law of God. But now we see in Jesus' words here, we see Paul tease it out in Romans 9 through 11. He says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And therefore, through this, the gospel will go to the nations until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, until the elect of God have come into the fold. Right? That, that word until, it, it matters there. This partial hardening is this, until these Gentiles come in, until God turns the hearts of many in Israel back to Himself. You can read in... Romans 11 there. But this doesn't mean this, this forsaking of the house of Israel, this turning to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the rule. 
right? The church was founded by Jewish believers. You read Acts, there's lots of Jewish people coming to Christ. The gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul made it his practice when he went into a new city to go to the synagogue first and see that he might convert Israelites when he went to evangelize the city. But by and large, right, we're not denying a remnant. By and large, God's chosen people from Genesis chapter 12 rejected Christ. They are the citizens that Jesus spoke about in the previous parable that said we do not want this king to rule over us remember they sent a delegation over to to say don't don't give us this king we don't want him again he's he's addressing these these pharisees the leader of leaders of israel and look at the promised destruction here in verses the end of or 43 and 44 for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. So Jesus pronounces this impending destruction. Now don't forget what we've been learning in, in Bible Hour about the Israelites who have been exiled who, who are coming back and they're building up the walls and they, they get to rebuild the temple. And Jeff made the point that this, this temple, it's, it symbolizes the presence of the Lord. And now Jesus says this, this temple is going to be totally destroyed. Jesus promises a terrible seizure. The enemy will surround you. They will pin you in. And the people of, of Jerusalem will be torn to the ground, and the structures of Jerusalem will be torn to the ground. This is total destruction, death, decimation. The house of Israel is forsaken. Right? And this, this happened. Even, we would say all judgment points to a, a final judgment. Right? But when was Israel surrounded and every stone was torn down? It happened when the emperor Titus marched towards Jerusalem with his army. And they built a barricade around the city. They killed everyone in the city. And they tore every, st every structure down stone from stone, including the temple. The house of Israel is forsaken. Jesus said this in, in Luke 13, 35. The house of Israel is forsaken until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Josephus, who is a, a Jewish historian, he wrote this about what happened there in 70 A.D. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any, had there remained any other such work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. He goes on to say this, Jerusalem is now demolished to the very foundations and hath nothing but that monument of it preserved. Well, what's, what does he mean, the monument? I mean the camp of those who have destroyed it, which still dwells upon its ruins. 
What's the monument that's in Jerusalem after this? The Roman soldiers who are camped out there. Well, what's the reason for this? Verse 44, the end there, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Visitation in, in the Bible is sometimes used uh, positively, like God can visit you with blessing. It's sometimes used negatively. God can visit you with judgment. And I think here we, we see kind of a play on words. They missed the visitation of God, which was to come with peace and blessing. So what do they, what do they receive? They receive the visit of their enemies. And how many times in the Old Testament did God raise up an army to judge His people? who had turned to idolatry and forsaken Him. You know, the whole point of the book of Judges is that the people rebelled, and then they were judged by the, with, with an enemy army taking over, and then the people cried out, and then God delivered them, and then they turned back to sin. And what did God do? He raised up another army to take them over, and then He delivered them. That's the whole theme of the book of Judges, that the enemies come in when they rebel against God. And so this is what... Israel was faced with. They missed the visitation of their God, and now they receive the visitation of their enemy. God does, though, indeed truly work all things together for good. This is not something that is outside of His sovereign purview. He is orchestrating every moment to bring about His good plan of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. Right? Even the rejection of Jerusalem and, and, and even the subsequent crucifixion of Jesus from our story, they're perfectly in line with His grand design. These aren't speed bumps. They are the means He uses to accomplish salvation. And it is actually through the rejection of Christ by which He's crucified, and it's through the rejection of Christ that the gospel goes to the nations. It's through the death of Jesus, because He was rejected, that His work might become the ground of the good news that goes to the world. Peace with God in light of the death of Jesus. And it's in that sacrificial work the laying down of his life. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's through his work that we can now behold our king, and we can rejoice in him. And we can sing about that, even as we prepare to sing, Rejoice, Jesus is King. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come across sobering texts. And we know that we too were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, deserving your judgment to fall on us, yet it fell on your Son, Jesus Christ. And now we have peace with you. We've been reconciled. We praise you and thank you for the glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.